0: Six to twenty-eight. He told them, "It is written, the Messiah, the Messiah will suffer, and rise from the dead after the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things." Thanks, Dad. Uh, you didn't know I liked country music so much, did you? <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a deep and abiding love for alt-country, so every time we have a special, it will be that. Uh, for those rap aficionados in the room, I apologize. Maybe we'll get there. Anyways, thank you for being here uh, this Easter morning. Uh, this is the day that we celebrate right this is the day that we party this is the way day where we get away with wearing purple pants right this is the day no we as christians on this day we eat ham right and we celebrate the reality that death no longer holds power over life that because of jesus' resurrection we can be assured of the fact assured of the fact That everything that seems hopeless, that seems mired in darkness, simply doesn't win in the end. Sorry. On Good Friday, we set aside some time to look deeply at Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And we said that the cross was Jesus putting on display what our sin looks like in public And if that's true, if the cross is the public declaration of what our sin looks like, then the resurrection is the public declaration of what victory looks like. In the resurrection, we see God's victory for what it is. We see a God who has won the victory over sin and death. In the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated and proven right. And this has all kinds of significance for us here today in Cedar Falls, Iowa. You might say, what type of significance can a man being raised from the dead 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me in northwest Iowa? East Iowa. I I grew up in northwest Iowa. That's the problem. Well, I'm glad you asked. Right? You asked? If you're new with us today, or uh, even if you're a regular and you don't pay attention to me very often... uh, We believe that the Bible is one big story, right? That it's it's the story of God's interaction with humanity. And so when we teach on a specific passage within the pages of Scripture, uh, you may have noticed this. What I'm always trying to do is tie that particular passage into the rest of the story, right? Because it's not a single isolated account. There's something happening there. It's this one part of a larger whole. And as uh, kind of like... uh, it's a, each individual story, each individual snapshot is kind of like a vignette, or if you want to put it in TV terms, which is helpful for us Americans, uh, one uh, story is like one episode in the entire narrative arc of a series. Does this make sense? And if you have ever been to a creative writing class or watched a compelling movie, uh, you know that the thing that propels any good story from the begin- from beginning to end is usually a problem of some sort, a problem or a question of some kind that propels any good narrative, any good story. In Braveheart, the problem is that the Scottish people are not free, right? This propels in love a little bit. Uh, In How I Met Your Mother, the question is, how did I meet your mother, right? (laughs) In Finding Nemo, the problem is we need to find Nemo, right? (laughs) I picked ones that were really obvious. and in the Bible, and in the Bible, the problem is twofold. The problem is twofold. The main problem is humanity's broken relationship with God. That's the central issue. But the cause of that broken uh, the, the cause of that broken relationship, the, the other problems are the twin diseases that cause that broken relationship are sin, sin, and death. And so all the stories in Scripture is God. Uh, trying to figure out, trying to work out how to solve this problem. And you might say, why is he trying to? He's God. Well, he has to deal with human beings. And this creates a couple of issues. We've all seen TV shows and movies based on the Bible, right? Uh, Last night, we turned the television on right before we went to bed, and actually, we turned, I think it was CBS or something, and we turned on the Ten Commandments, and Ashley goes, it's still on? Right? Isn't that the longest recorded movie in in human history? I think it runs like four and a half days. (laughs) Right? The Ten Commandments. And that's just one episode of the entire story, the narrative arc of Scripture. It's just one little vignette. It's just one little piece. And yet, There's all of this other stuff happening. There's all of these other things going on. There are ups and there are downs in the Scriptures. And just to give you a quick overview, uh, things don't always go real well, right? God is always working with His people through the story of Scripture. He is always dealing with Israel primarily. But one thing we learn about God throughout the whole entirety of the Bible is that God never separates His plan for humanity from His relationship with humanity. And what do I mean by this? It, it, might, it takes a little explaining, I think. I mean that God never, ever works out His plan to deal with sin and death outside of His relationship with people. And this is why it takes a little time. This is why there are some problems. Because the whole purpose of dealing with sin and death is so that people can join in this beautiful relational life of God, right? That's the whole point of the endeavor. And let me tell you that this makes things much harder, right? I don't know if you've ever hung out with people before. But if you have, you know this to be true, that they tend to be difficult. We tend to be difficult. But the reason God does things this way is because the whole plan is about love and relationship, right? God is willing to struggle, willing, willing even to be hurt or misunderstood so long as his plan is enacted in and through people, in and through you and me. So, let's fast forward to the New Testament for a moment and to Jesus. Now, if God is all about relationship, if that's his heart, if that's what he's all about, and if his plan is not just to uh, save uh, sin, us from sin and death, if his, problem, if, his, if his plan is not just to take sin and death away, but if his, his plan is to restore relationship, how do you think a purely relational God would go about doing that? If God at his very core is pure relational love, what would he do? Well, if God were, at God's core, relational love, or what the Bible calls agape love, then he would have to deal with, sin and de- with that sin and death problem personally, right? He would have to deal with it in person. He would not simply deal with it by keeping us at arm's length. He would enter into our predicament, bear it with us, and work within the confines of relationship work within the confines of relationship to deal with the problem, right? If God were pure love, then God would deal with this problem personally. And the Bible tells us that God's plan, his grand story, finds its climax in the person of Jesus, in Jesus himself. Jesus comes on the scene and begins to say a lot of crazy stuff, if we're being honest, right? A lot of stuff that no one had really said before He begins to say that he is the Messiah, God's deliverer, and that uh, he has come to sort out all of the sin and death stuff, right? Now, if you have been with us since the beginning of the season of Lent, uh, you know that we've been journeying through the book of Luke. And Luke does this really interesting thing in his gospel. Beginning in chapter 9, uh, we see that Jesus starts saying some stuff to his disciples about where his life is headed, about what his trajectory is, about where he is actually going. And in Luke 9.22, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and then on the third day raised to life. This is what he says. And for the disciples, this creates a kind of strange reaction. You can imagine, right, if the person that you'd pegged your life and hope to says to you that he's going to be uh, crucified and then raised to life, right? You would, you would think that this would mi- create a couple of double takes, right? Like, what in the world? But that's not what the text says that the disciples did, really, What the text said that the disciples did is that they didn't even notice what he said. (laughs) It was so far afield from what they had come to understand that they couldn't really even get their minds around what Jesus had just said. Their hearts, their minds, their intellect was not even open to the possibility that this was an option. And so when Jesus said it, they didn't even hear it, right? We do this too, for the record. Jesus says this all the way back in the middle of Luke's gospel, and everything that follows after that is a series of episodes of God's big story, working through the person of Jesus to bring about his plan of redemption. And eventually it leads Jesus directly to where he said it would. He wasn't lying. It leads him to the cross where God in the flesh steps into our situation, steps into our sin, and bears it for us and dies for us but that is not all that is not necessarily the end of the story either is it and while it is not a big surprise to us because it's easter and if you've been uh, to church on easter you know this uh, but for his disciples and really everyone else in the world up until that point uh, <laughs> who have to uh, you have to really put yourself in their shoes uh, the idea of resurrection is kind of a big deal, (laughs) right? If everybody who died stayed dead, and then somebody died and he didn't stay dead, and you'd never heard of that before, it would be a big deal, right? Sometimes we move past it in our culture because of Easter, right? We've celebrated Easter every year of our lives, right? Since the day we were born, most of us. Some of us maybe not, but many of us at least have been in a culture where that is the case, right? And so this idea of resurrection, this idea of coming back from the dead is a common one to us, and we move past it. But the sheer kind of shock and awe that it created in the hearts of the disciples is incredibly telling. And after Jesus' resurrection, so after his resurrection, he again repeats to his disciples almost exactly what he said to them back in chapter 9. And that was the passage that was read for us today. In uh, chapter 24, verse 46, he, said, he told them, This is what is written The Messiah will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, for the repentance uh, uh, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. So now Jesus says to his disciples almost exactly the same thing that he said back in chapter 9, but this time they listened to him. Surprise, surprise, right? Resurrection has a way of helping people listen a little bit. I hope it helps you listen today. That's a joke. So, see, that was a resurre—that was an Easter Sunday joke. I was going to begin this message by taking a poll about who can tell me about an Easter message that they actually remember. But then I realized I was setting the bar really high for myself, and so we would not do that. You see, within the resurrection, Jesus was... Uh, Jesus was doing something, right? He was communicating something incredibly powerful to us. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just another of the world's countless murdered revolutionaries or religious martyrs. But in the resurrection, we see God for who he truly is. In 2 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul is talking about this idea, uh, particularly in verse 19. And he says this, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So in the resurrections, our sins are forgiven and the power of, of death over our lives is broken. But what Paul is concerned with primarily is that the resurrection has now taken place, that now that the resurrection has taken place, what Paul is primarily concerned with is the relationship, the reconciliation that ought to be occurring between God and the entirety of the world. You see, Jesus came and dealt personally with the sin and death problem. He took those out in the resurrection he dealt with them completely, and finally, they no longer have sway over our lives. And yet, Paul says the reason this happened, the reason Jesus did this, was so that the entirety of the world would be reconciled back to God through Jesus, through Jesus. So, the, so in the resurrection, in the resurrection, we see God's plan to deal with our problems, we see God's plan to deal with the central and defining problem of our lives, which is not actually sin and death. Those things are really bad, and Jesus took care of them. But but in Jesus, we see God's ultimate plan to deal finally with the issue of our alienation from God. And notice how complete uh, this reconciliation is that Paul says here. It encompasses the entirety of, of the world. It encompasses everything. Now, I put two really provocative things in your notes, and if you've seen them and you come from an evangelical background, you're like, what is Nick going to talk about? This is crazy. I don't know why I felt the need to word these sentences this way. Uh, I just did. But uh, So so if you have your notes, you can look. Uh, point one, I just said this. The problem with a personal relationship with God I want to talk about that idea briefly, the problem with a personal relationship with God. Now, if you have been paying attention at all in this message, you would say, what, what are you talking about? That's the, entire, that's the entire thrust of your message is the personal way in which God needs to relate to us. But I want to I wanna point at something really interesting that I see, particularly in Western evangelical traditions, about this idea of salvation, about what leads us to God, about what actually saves us. Now, in evangelical circles, what we often say about how we need to be related to God, we say we need a personal relationship with God, a personal relationship with Jesus. This is the language we use very often. Have you Who's heard this? Who's heard this language before? If not, that's fine. This isn't for you. Just be on your phone. See, that was sarcasm, so don't put your phone away. <laughs> so, the, in the West, particularly in, in America, I think, it becomes a problem. And we've misunderstood the word personal, and we've taken it to mean individual or private, right? So, me and God have this little personal private relationship over here in the corner, and it's really no one else's business, is what we think. But this, uh, this would be a misunderstanding of both the words personal and relational in the context of the Bible. Paul says in this passage that this news about the personal way in which we are being reconciled to God is about the entirety of the world, right? And Jesus in Luke 24 in our passage for today uh, communicates to the, to the disciples that everybody needs to get in on this forgiveness of sin thing, Right? It is is true, God wants us to be personally related to him. He He wants us to have a relationship with him. But we cannot do this by ourselves. And it is most certainly not private. It is thoroughly communal. Because God himself, we learn from the scriptures, is perfect community. Right? There is this passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus is praying for his disciples. This is right before Um, he's to be crucified, and he prays this really long prayer. If you see it in your Bibles, it's called Jesus's High Priestly Prayer. And and in it, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I pray that um, my followers would be one, that there would be some semblance of unity between them, as you and I are one, as the Father and Jesus are one. And the reason, and he prays this, is in this really interesting way, because he says that if, by virtue of their unity, by their unity with each other and by their unity to me, by their togetherness, by the collective nature of their lives as followers of Jesus, the whole world will know that you sent me. This is what Jesus prays. Jesus has this incredibly communal conception of what faith looks like, of how the love and reconciliation of God need to be communicated to the world. The Bible, uh, the Bible simply does not have a category for solitary or private Christian faith. It is a foreign concept to the New Testament. It really is. There is simply no such thing To know God, to know the ultimate relational being, to know the being that is pure relational love, to know that being is to be a person who opens your arms to relationship and to love and to others. To, To know that God is to be in unity with other people following that same God. To follow that God is to long and desire for more people to come into that relational life that is the love of God. We cannot do this on our own. There is no such thing, there is no such thing as a personal in terms of solitary relationship with Jesus. There simply is not. And in America, we've confused this. We we really have. We believe that my faith is my faith, and I can hold it, that I can be in the corner with God and my Bible, and I'm fine. That is a foreign concept to the New Testament. It really is. And this is why God calls the church to be the ultimate representation of his love and goodness out into the world. All right? All right. (laughs) Thank you. So that's one. Number two for this morning is God is not primarily concerned with your sin. You ever thought of that? God is not primarily concerned with your sin. Many of us have, I think, have a faulty conception of who God is. That God is just kind of a heavenly scorekeeper and, he keep, and he's up in heaven going, Oh man, there's another sin, there's another sin, and now there's another sin. And if the tally is too much on the sin side, uh-oh, right? This is kind of the conception we have of God. Very rarely do we think of God as being secondarily concerned with sin. God's primary concern is not your sin. He's concerned with it, right? Jesus bore our sin on the cross because it is, is a serious thing, but that is not central. That is not the central thing that God is driving towards. The thing that God is primarily concerned with is the relationship. The thing that God is primarily concerned with is that you and I be reconciled to him in relational love. And we almost always miss this in religion, don't we? We almost always miss that God is a God who is inviting us into this beautiful life of love and relationship. We almost always miss it. Because we want to just have a set number of things that we need to do in order to get my kind of the the tally on the good side, and then I'm okay, right? That's what we want. We want to just be able to work hard enough that then I know I'm okay, right? We don't want to stand before a God who doesn't just want us to do things for him, but simply wants us, right? If you've ever been in any type of a relationship, you know this to be true. Occasionally, uh, I will default to just doing things for my wife, right? Just like cleaning, cleaning the kitchen and thinking that that makes me a good husband, right? Uh, maybe you can resonate with me here, people. Uh, that just by, by doing things for this person, right, that I'm now like in the good relationally. And that has very, sometimes it can help the relationship, but very often that is not the center of the relationship. I occasionally clean the kitchen because it's good for the relationship and because I like a clean kitchen, but that is not the relationship, and we confuse those categories very often, don't we? God does not want your soul to simply be clean. He wants your soul to be His, and He does not care particularly about your sin. He cares about your life, he cares about you being folded into this beautiful life of God. Our Eastern Orthodox friends have a way of talking about this that I really like. They they say very often that we can be folded into the divine life; that the life of the divine is available to us in some real and true way. And we, as faulty, fallen human beings, through Christ, have been uh, that possibility has been made available to us. That we can in some real and true way dwell with the creator of the universe in beautiful, sometimes scary, fear is a word that's often used in the Bible because God is big, right? Relationship. We can dwell with God in relationship. And the resurrection is the proclamation to the world that we can now share in this divine identity the life of god that through jesus sin and death are defeated and that life and that the life of god is open and available to each of us to every single one of us that the life of god is now available to us so this is real and true but it doesn't often feel true does it because life can get in the way i don't know about you I, one for about an for about 30 minutes every week I talk in big flowery terms about how important and powerful God is and then I tend to get off the stage and there are big and important and and like significant experiences with God I have off the stage but there's also this sense of like real life is not as big and flowery as what I just said <laughs> right at, at times it doesn't feel that way it feels like life is a little difficult right the, the reality of God being this ultimate and, like, through-going uh, movement of relational love doesn't always strike us, because sometimes they get a flat tire, and gas prices are too high, right? But if we take Jesus at His Word, and if we look to the resurrection— Right. If we, if if we believe that the resurrection was a historical reality, then the life of this all-consuming and loving God is available for us, even at the moments in our lives when we do not see it or feel it. It is available to us, and the God is continually, continually working out this plan that it was begun at the resurrection of Jesus, of reconciling the entirety of the world back into himself, that the world, that individuals, might experience this pure, loving relationship. That's the point. That's the point. It's not about religion. It's not about getting all, the, getting all your I's dotted and your T's crossed. It's not primarily about your sin. It is about the relationship that God wants to have with each of us. And so you might ask, how do I have that relationship with God? You identify with Jesus. That's how. It is through Jesus that we, that we step into this beautiful kind of dance, this relational dance that is the life of God. And some days it won't feel great. Some days it won't even feel particularly real. But I promise you, I promise you that resurrection life, when you commit yourself to Jesus, when you commit to be a follower of Jesus, will flow through you in ways you never thought possible. Sometimes it won't feel real. Sometimes you'll doubt. That's all normal. But the resurrection shows us that God is in the business of reconciling all things back into himself. And you and I, are the beneficiary, beneficiaries of that resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we know that life can occasionally be hard But we also feel that at the core of our beings is this deep and longing, this desire to be folded into true and pure relationship. Our desire is to be known fully and completely. Our desire is to be loved without reservation. And in the resurrection, we see a God who loves us without reservation. In the resurrection, we see a God who is longing and desiring to bring us into His divine life and, biver- and share in that together. Jesus, I pray for those in this room who maybe haven't experienced that reality in their lives. Maybe they know about Jesus, maybe, but they feel deep down in their hearts that I haven't tapped into this divine life you're talking about. I haven't tapped into the, the energy or the power that controls the cosmos. I pray for that individual today, that they would both yield their lives to Jesus and find and connect with that reality that is reconciling them to God. Jesus, we love you, and we ask that you would help us to love you more. We pray it all in your name. Amen, and amen, and amen. So, that's the story. That's the story that we all get to be a part of, and it's the story that, uh, that God longs to bring you into in a fuller and deeper way. And I pray that this Easter, today, you would feel and know the love of God over your lives in such a profound and significant way. Go in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.